Well, good morning, everybody. Hope you all had a great week. I'm sure all of you are busy, as I know most of you are. But it's, uh, once again, I know I repeat myself every Sunday morning when I come up here, but it is uh, God's mercy that we're still here, we're still alive, right? You woke up this morning, you still have another day, and, and I'm so grateful that the Lord has brought you here. I'm so grateful, number one, that you're a believer. There's a lot of people, you know, what does it say, it was 150,000 people pass every 24 hours. I believe it's 86 per minute or whatever, going into eternity uh, without Christ. And what a terrible, terrible place that would that would be. So um, I thank God that all of you have come to know Christ through the power of His Holy Spirit. And you're here this morning. And yes, we are going to continue our track uh, through 1 Samuel uh, chapter 18, again, 6 through 9. I know it's been a couple of weeks and I have a real... It's real challenging when it when it becomes choppy and and things don't you know fit into that order where you remember everything that was spoken the week before you come back to it and then we take off again. But it's been a little while, uh, so I will be spending some time to briefly go over uh, some of the content that we'd already visited, just to make sure it's solidified. And it's where it needs to be before we build upon that as well. So let us go now to 1 Samuel chapter 18. I'm going to read 6 through 9 again just so we can all get acclimated uh, to what is going on this morning. 1 Samuel 18, 6 reads, Now it happened as they were coming home when David was returning from the slaughter of the Philistine that the women had come out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with joy, and with musical instruments. So the women sang as they danced and said, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. Then Saul was very angry and the saying displeased him. And he said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands and to me they've ascribed only thousands. Now what more can he have but the kingdom? So Saul eyed David from that day forward. A few Sundays ago, we discussed Saul's envy and hatred against David. Now let me just remind you this morning, this is a particular negative narrative at this point in the story. You know, every preacher wants to come out of the gates being positive and optimistic but there are times where things can seem a bit negative right and a bit down but i think this is what the word is showing us and i think it's okay to go to those places so we can get an understanding of the bright hope that we have in jesus christ um we talked about number one jealousy and envy Versus humility and contentment. Number two, having a good reputation versus a performance-driven idolatry. And number three, having an enduring, fervent ministry versus a short-lived ego trip. Right? We've all been to those churches before, right? Personality-driven. It's all about the pastor's ego. And everybody's got to conform to his image opposed to Christ. Well, here it isn't so. 
Um, let us go ahead and, and, and start with prayer. Father, I just thank you this morning uh, that we're here. I thank you for this message. I pray, Father, that you would give us all hearts to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. As we know, this particular event in all reality is nothing more than a manifestation of the life of Saul. We talked about this. We talked about, you know, uh, we, we see Saul's, the inception of his kingdom. When he was raised up by the people, the people wanted a worldly master, a worldly king, opposed to God being their king, right? God told Samuel, listen, they're not, they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me. So they went ahead and they raised up Saul. They wanted a king just like all the other nations. Saul, as we saw at the very beginning, came out swinging, did very well in his first battle. He conquered, he gained an influence with the people. But then we see his decline as things start to get worse. He decides to step out of his leadership responsibilities and getting angry at those who are picking up his slack. Very dangerous. From the moment we see Saul enter onto the pages of Scripture, we are introduced to someone who starts his mission as really, ultimately, as a failure and ends it in the same way. Because, you no know, Saul, you know, Scripture seems to indicate he was unconverted. He's unregenerate. From what I read, it looks to be the case. God is the... Only God knows. He's the author and the finisher of our salvation. God only knows exactly where Saul is today. But the point is when we read his story, we look through his career, we see, you know, consistency in his failure to lead his people. Even Saul at one point wanted to kill his own son because his son didn't obey his laws, right? His rules. And, and his son ate some honey, so he wanted to destroy his son. His son starts the war with the Philistines because his dad is doing who knows what, can't be seen, don't know where he went, had one good battle, decided to take the comfort route that a lot of people do over one major victory. We find Saul, he's completely disappeared. Jonathan jumps in the fray, starts the war, takes off, him and his armor bearer fight and dominate, and now he's actually in the thick of battle. God shakes the whole earth, right? Saul looks out there, and instead of him going out there saying, I'm going to go fight with my son, he asks someone to come up, bring him the role, so he can find out who it is that's out there doing the fighting. Come to find out, it's his son. Another battle takes place. He calls the priest for, for prayer and direction. When the battle's going on, it wasn't a time to pray. It was a time to fight. See, Saul's whole ministry was one of performance and wanting to be seen by other people. It was idolatry right from the very get-go. Get -go. It was really just all about him. And when you get to the point, I'm going to tell you something right now. Envy is so toxic, it is so toxic, and it's everywhere, it's even here, okay? And it can show up in some of the places that you think are the most godly. Envy is so bad that people would even kill each other over it. You hear it all the time in the news. Things happen with people's wives or spouses, and they, they wipe them out out of this angry, because when you're envious, you're really envious, it brings about a certain mindset to bring you into such a dark place that you'll do anything to get your way, even murder. Now, it may not be murder to the physical body, but you'll murder someone's reputation. You try to destroy them so you can look better. 
You will gossip. You will slander. You will talk about people behind their backs. You roll your eyes. You chuckle. You tease other people. And, you know, God sees all of that. And a lot of that is, 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 is envy. And it's dangerous. And it lurks in all of our hearts if we're not careful. And it's important to look at the, the life of Saul because it's, it, what we do as Christians, and I've done this and I'm guilty of this, is that we take Saul and we make him out to be the bandit, the bad guy, right? And we look at David, right? And of course, we're always David, aren't we? We're always David, you know? We do nothing wrong. We're always doing what's right. And we're fantastic at pointing out other people's sin, right? We become professional exposers. Our whole ministry is about exposing the faults of everybody else. But the reality is, a lot of us, to be honest this morning, we're more like Saul than David. Right? A lot of times, we're looking to be seen. We want to perform in such a way that we get noticed, we get validated, we get promotions, we get people looking up to us. It's, it's a very dangerous place, but I think it's important. I think that's why the Lord has us in Scripture to show what the unregenerate look like in leadership. Or the regenerate who is really, I don't like to use the word necessarily backslidden, but not following through with what he's called to do as a leader. And these things can be extremely, extremely toxic. Envy is a silent killer of many, many in the church. Jesus put it like this in Luke 12, 15. He says, beware of covetousness. Now you say, well, Jeff, you just said envy. But I'm going to show you here shortly where covetousness and Envy and a lot of these things all are kind of from the same seedbed of, of an evil heart. All of these things. Jesus said, beware of all, he says, covetousness. For a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Certainly this is true when it comes to, you know, people will generally think that, hey, the more money I have in my bank account means the more spiritually blessed I am of God. And you look at someone who doesn't have any money and this and that, and you wonder what's wrong with him. What's wrong with him? Aren't you walking with the Lord? Aren't you trusting the Lord? Don't you have enough faith? You don't have any money? Well, nowhere in Scripture does it say that someone who has a lot of possessions is more blessed of the Lord. Read Malachi. He says, I will, he says, I will curse your blessings. Sometimes blessings are a curse. What do you mean? Yeah, because some of these things are stored up and manufactured from the flesh and the heart of man. And sometimes God will just give them over. Go ahead. You want it? Have it. The Pharisees, they wanted their prayers answered. They wanted to be seen by men when they were praying, when they were fasting, when they were giving. The Lord says, fine, you have your reward. There you go. But it certainly isn't a reward that they're going to receive from him. But it's because of their own self-indulgence. Coveting is when you want... when. You want what someone else has. That's coveting, which you can see is very clear, close to envy, right? Well, envying is when you don't want someone else to have what they've been given, right? Because you want that. Coveting wants to gain something for yourself. Envy wants to deny something to someone else. And they're very closely related, and sometimes they can be mingled together because they're very, they do come from a heart, as Saul had, was an issue of what? Rebellion. It all meets its final head in rebellion, having a rebellious spirit. Because you can unpack that and go down from rebellion and cut it all the way down. You're going to find covetousness. You're going to find envy. You're going to find jealousy. You're going to find these things that operate not from the Spirit of God, but from the evil intentions of our own hearts. 
Samuel said to Saul in 1 Samuel 15.23, he says, For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Saul basically was deceitful. He was deceitful as well. He wasn't only envious. He wasn't only jealous, right? He wasn't just covetous, covetous, but he was also deceitful. The intentional misleading or beguiling of another person is deceit. And scripture represented as a companion of many other forms of wickedness, as cursing, Psalms 10.7, hatred, Proverbs 26.24, theft, covetousness, adultery, murder, and envy that we all see in Mark 7, uh, verse 22, and in Romans 1, 29. Which basically, what's it pointing to? What's it pointing to? It's pointing to what? The heart, right? It's pointing to where all of the issues of life flow from. Flow from is from the heart. And this is where you're dealing with the heart. In Jeremiah 17, 9, it says that the heart is deceitful above all things. What does the Proverbs say? Above all things, what? Guard your hearts. And he's saying here that the heart that is deceitful is above all things. And desperately wicked, who can know it? You know, Calvin said that our hearts are idol factories. You know, the production and the manufacturing of, of idols continually flow out of not just an unconverted heart, guys, because we're not perfectionists, right? We are constantly and continually being sanctified. But the reality is if we're not careful, if we don't put to death the old man, as the Bible says, the Bible says, put to death the old man. So that means if it's still in Scripture, that we are still to continually put to death the old man. Because how much does it surface in your life? It surfaces in mine. I see it pop up. I see it pop up right after prayer sometimes. I'll read a whole book out of the Bible and think I'm the godliest saint on the planet, turn around and I'm hollering at somebody on the highway. You know, some of the meanest people I've ever met are, are, are Bible teachers, or people who are constantly in the Word, or people say they pray 18 hours a day. They're some of the most honoriest people I've ever met in my entire life. You know, so doing these things don't make us godly people. Only a heart that's been changed by Christ that is, is, is um, approached in humility and dependence upon Him. God himself meets with that person and changes that person more into the image of his son. And prayer softens. I'll tell you one thing for sure. One thing that I have learned. Sometimes I feel like saying something about an individual that's doing something wrong out loud to start a conversation in my home about that person. But I'm reminded of if you pray for that person, you develop a heart for that person, and that person is an object of your prayer, you'll grow a love for that person. And your heart, instead of wanting to gossip, will be broken and will default instead of talking about the person. Well, that time could be spent praying for the person. And it really does change. It changes your heart. It changes your walk during the day when you're in prayer with the Lord. You're spending time with the Lord. And I'm not trying to you know, um, 
call anybody out today about prayer. I'm just reminding you of the sweet beauty of true biblical prayer that's not done with a legalistic heart. Because you come to Christ, you come to him, and, and even I think, I don't remember exactly who the quote came from. It could be, I, could, I think it was uh, George Mueller who said that, you know, even God hears the just all, if all you can do is groan, all you can do is cry, God hears that communication as if you're telling him exactly what is going on. And it's the beauty of Christ. He made us. He formed us, right? He is the true inventor of communication. He is the creator of communication. It isn't like he's going to be, oh, well, you didn't say that, that, that sentence correct. I didn't understand. Could you repeat that? No, you're, you're laying there. You're broken. And sometimes all you can do is scream. But God hears perfectly what you mean through that scream. And I think that's the way, I'm not saying we should scream to the Lord every day, but I am saying that we need to come to Christ just as we are, into his presence, filthy, dirty, bloody, beaten up, bruised, left for dead. Come to Christ. When you're prospering, when God is prospering you, maybe you're at the top of your game in your business. Maybe you're making more money than you've ever made in your life. Don't get comfortable and skip God and say, now I'm self-sufficient, I don't need him anymore. But rejoice in the Lord. Praise his holy name. Thank him for giving you the ability to get any wealth that you have. Don't be greedy with your wealth. Don't just hide it away like an old miser. Shining up your coins every night. I mean, it's we, we, need, to, we need to be about the Lord's business. We need to be free to be generous as well. We don't want to be stingy people, right? Nothing worse than... You know, I'll tell you one thing, and I'll be quick on this one. You guys know how I wander. Um, I used to own a business. I owned a business for uh, five years as a personal training clinic. Did very well. But the majority of my clients were Mormons. And I was right under the Mormon temple in Mesa, Arizona. So I got all Mormons, you know. But when they would come in and pay for something, they always paid in full. Right? They always paid in full. And they brought me a lot of clients. Now, the Christians that came from the church, the mega church across the street to work out always wanted to either get free sessions, free training, or, or a payment plan that would allow them to give 50 cents a week. Right? It was, and then they never showed up again. You know, it's just very difficult. Christians are very difficult to deal with in that world. Even tipping. You go out to eat, you slide a gospel track in there, and you don't give them a tip. It's, it's ridiculous. I, I think it's wicked uh, where a lot of a lot of these things with, with Christians and being stingy like that with their money is really a bad testimony. Could you imagine some mom's working her rear end off, working hours, she's leaving her kids somewhere else, and you have the audacity to slide a track in there and say, this is the most important thing of all, worth more than money. Well, maybe not to her. We say, well, she's got to have the gospel. Well, put it in there. But put a $20 bill in there as well. Know that she needs to survive just like the rest of us. God blesses someone who is generous and doesn't give out of compulsion, but gives because they love Christ. They know Christ is there, and they know Christ supplies all of their needs. I will digress. 2 Corinthians 12, 7 says, So to keep me from becoming, Paul says this, conceited, not just deceited, Deceitful, but conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations. A thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to what? Harass me. That's the last thing 
I want the Lord to give me is some demon or whatever this thorn is to harass me every single day of my life. Um, but the Lord knew where Paul had been. They knew his revelations were powerful. What Paul was being raised up to in ministry that here God was saying, I am going to keep you from becoming conceited. Would have been nice to give King Saul a little thorn in his flesh as well. Now we know a demon was sent to him to harass him. Fortunately, David came and rescued him and medicated him with his harp. But here we're seeing Paul, even Paul understood leadership. He understood that, that to be a, a, a prolific leader of anyone... You've got to be humble. You've got not envious, not prideful, right? Not covetous, not greedy, not deceitful, not conceited, right? Because of where he's been, it very well could happen for him. But the reality is here is that a thorn was given to him because God kept him humble. Paul understands the idea of leadership. Leaders have to be humble. All of you are different walks of life, all right? It isn't always just saying the church, but wherever you're at, whatever people group you're leading, you have to lead with humility and consistency. You can't just want to be a leader but not do the work and then expect everybody to treat you as their leader when you're not willing to do the work that, that would validate your leadership. That's a, that's, a, that's a big issue, and you see it all the time. They fall in love with the title idol, right? They want the title, and it becomes an idol. And they think they have the title, so they don't have to do anything to be able to hold to that title. I think it was William Wallace in the movie Braveheart talking to Robert the Bruce as he was going to, he wanted him to lead the people. And he told him, that leaders don't follow, people don't follow, follow titles. They follow strength. They follow bravery. That's what people follow. They don't care about, they don't care about your, your titles and all your degrees if you can't lead people. They absolutely mean nothing. Sure. Being conceited mean, meaning really means having a high exaggerated or a high opinion of yourself. Uh, or one's accomplishments. And we see this in the life of Saul. He had a very high, exaggerated opinion of himself. Right? He had this. And that's, that's where he lived. And really, that's where he died. Saul was covetous. He was envious. He was rebellious. He was idolatrous. He was jealous. He was deceitful. And he was conceited. Which all, ma all manifested in his rebellious lifestyle. So hearing this, I know to cushion all the negativity can be a little bit alarming, but I would pray today that we wouldn't just look at Saul of how rotten he was, but yet we would take a moment to look at the own rottenness of our own life. Because like I said, it's easy, right, to pass the buck onto somebody else. You know, we always ask God, God, you know, I'm asking you, you know, I'm praying for so-and-so that he would, he would start doing better and that he would repent, get right with the Lord. All these things we need to do, but when there's never any kind of humility in your life where you're able to proclaim your own weaknesses and your own sin, I mean, that, that is a, a huge warning sign to the church when the pastor's never, ever, ever transparent and never honest with the congregation about his own life and his own struggles. These are all signs of a fading leadership. And this really would be the title of the message today, is really the fading leadership 
of King Saul. Because as you notice, it didn't just disappear all of a sudden, right? Because David, he was anointed, right? He was anointed outdoors privately by uh, Samuel. And his, his leadership, as you know, and you can see, as you can see, it begins to lighten. It begins to, you notice it begins to, um, it begins to shine more and more and more. And Saul's light begins to go out, go out. At the same time, one's building, the other one's slowly fading. And see, so we want to be on the side of Christ. And when the book of Daniel says that the, the righteous, they, they, they shine brighter and brighter and brighter up until the day that we go and we meet our Lord. We don't want to be in a position in our lives where what we're doing, our leadership is starting to fade. And it fades and it fades and it fades and it fades and you're finally, you're ousted out. I'm not saying you're ousted out of your faith in Christ but your ministry endeavors will be destroyed if you cannot get out of your own way. Uh, the, Samuel knew it. The people knew that Saul was fading. And this was demonstrated by the song that was sung. David, David knew it as a part of his medicating with his harp. And yes, even Saul knew it. Uh, not only because David had told him, but Saul could see what was happening through the life of David and his exploits. And this is why he started to get angry. Because he saw it as well. He knew he was out. He knew his leadership was fading. But he didn't want that. And he thought somehow as his, as his leadership and kingship was manufactured by the flesh, that he felt as well that the arm of the flesh could pull his leadership back into position in which it couldn't. Numbers 32 says, be sure, the second half of that verse says, be sure your sin will find you out. And this is what's happening. This is, what, this is what's going on is when these, these women, they start breaking out into song. They come up to Saul and they start singing, you know, and it's, it's here where you can go ahead and keep everybody quiet, right? Even kill your son if he gets mouthy. Whatever it takes to maintain your level of authority, you're going to do whatever it takes to do that. But at some point, you're going to run out of corks, okay? It's going to be revealed. If your leadership isn't on par, you're going to be revealed. If you're in it for yourself, it's going to be noticed not just by you, but it's going to be noticed by everybody else too. That's your kingdom is most certainly fading. Matthew 15, 19, Jesus said, For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witnesses, and blasphemies. I'd like to break down these verses and look at them again really quick as we move through this. Um, first of all, let's deal with it. I, I'm going to go through this quite quickly because the first one we've already been through, but I do want to just touch on it really quickly as we get to our final points. Uh, the first one is jealousy and envy versus humility and contentment. Remember, Saul was jealous of anyone who took away the spotlight from him. First Samuel 18, 6, it says, Now it had happened as they were coming back when David was returning from the slaughter of the Philistines. And there's something about this particular moment that makes this moment um, so powerful. Because you all remember, right, 
the moment when you've had a victory in your life or something great has happened or just something maybe the Lord had did it or just you saw the Lord do some exploits in your life. Or I don't know what it was. It could be an answer of prayer. You get the phone call. This person's been healed. This person's okay. And you just fly, right? It's exhilarating. Also, you know, there's something about battle and war and times of war. You know, like world, you can go like World War II and the impact that that had on the whole world. And even now we see World War II veterans and we esteem them because their age and their generation just built some of the strongest, godliest men that I still know of today, right? And it's just something about that. And then, you know, when the draft went out, people all ran to the draft, you know? Oh, well, they drafted, they didn't have a choice. But people, even like in World War One, were came by the thousands to sign up because they knew that their country was being attacked and ultimately it could be placed under tyrants. My point is what I'm saying here. The point is, is that there's something about the atmosphere of either going into battle that rejuvenates the soul as a purpose. It's satisfying to know that I'm alive to do something that's productive and important. There's meaning in my existence. It gives them meaning as they're walking off to battle. They, they know there's a chance they might not be coming home, but they don't care because their whole existence is enraptured with this idea that they're doing something meaningful. Now, they come back from a battle. They come back from war. And they have the exhilaration of, of coming back from a victory. And David, David had just decimated Goliath in a decisive, one of the biggest decisive, decisive battles of all of history. He destroys Goliath. He not only takes his head off, and then he goes on a campaign for Saul. And all the men seeing him fight and battle are, 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 are attracted to him. They, just, there's something, even Jonathan. You know, it's so great to have a brother that's in battle with you in, in, in whatever realm it is, wherever you're at in life, to have somebody. I'm going to tell you something. It, it attracts people like you to yourself. You know, it really doesn't. And if you look at Jonathan, you look at, you look at David, they were so similar. But I think what, what, what drove them together was they're both, they're both warriors. And they both get it. They get this, what, they get each other. You ever met a friend and you guys just seemed like you've been best friends forever because you both have the same interest, you're both glued, your theological positions are the same, your eschatology is the same, you have all this, you know, I'm just kidding about the eschatology, but <laughs> you just meet people that you can just do life with and it's so refreshing. So David and Saul are coming back, right? war-torn, probably tired and bloody and messed up, and who knows the scars that they have on their bodies or how much blood that they shed personally. But we know when they come back, David had a reputation already out there. Things were being said. Things were going viral about this guy. He was doing some massive destruction on the enemy, and people were hearing about it. So he's coming back, and all parts of Israel. The women are teaming out and they're coming up to King Saul and they're, you know, they're, they're, they're just, you know, they're, they get ready to break into song and that's when things start to get nutty. Because this is where Saul notices that, uh-oh, 
you know what? Um, this isn't really what I had anticipated. I am the king. They should be making me out to be the guy that killed 10,000 and David the 1,000. Um, but this catapulted David into fame and he was now the most respected man in the land. And this happens anytime someone steps up in the face of evil and does something about it instead of looking for attention and respect yet never applies any action. Major, major point. Saul never really established any kind of following with his people. He never established any kind of following. His entire reign seemed like it was manufactured from the flesh, creating an image of himself to others that he was leading while the whole time hiding and avoiding responsibility. It says, And the women come out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with joy, and with musical instruments. So the women sang and they danced and said, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And we see that's the really the, the crux of the entire chapter, well at least the, the, where I'm at in the chapter, or these verses, is that this seems to be the pin that was pulled from the grenade in Saul's life. This set him on a course of anger, hatred, and murder from this point on. And we know as we'll continually read, we'll see of his attacks on David, but we'll read how David never attacked Saul. Really a, a beautiful story. Um, and it said in, in, in verse 7, So the women sang as they danced, and they, they sang this song that Saul had only slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And this was really, I believe, ordained of God to harass Saul, to harass him. I think, it's, I think it was the, um, what do you want to call it, the straw that broke the camel's back. Um, I, I mean, there's something about every single woman coming out of all parts of Israel singing these songs hits the very soul of the existence of a man. That's right. It really does. Um, you know, it's something about ladies, right? Out there singing. And here's this victorious men, men of valor coming back into the city, right? And they're met. What a beautiful complimenting thing to do is that they went up to these leaders and they met right up to them. They didn't stick their head out the window and probably a lot of people were. But the reality is that they came up and they met them and they began the song. Now for David, it would have been great. But for Saul, it would have been quite annoying. As you can see, he felt really harassed and really, really angry. Which brought us to our second point, having a good reputation versus performance-driven idolatry. I do apologize if you weren't here last week. The sermon is up on Sermon Audio if you want to hear it. But I'm only going to just glean across this quickly uh, so we can move on. So having a good reputation, hear me now, having a good reputation versus, versus performance-driven idolatry. you got to be real careful with this because it's a fine line. you got to be real careful, especially in ministry, that you are not in it uh, for reasons of being everyone's little idol, right? You're, you're in it to serve people and to honor the Lord, first and foremost. Um, credibility goes a long way. Just always remember that. Credibility goes a long way. I've been in ministry for a long time. Uh, Jeremiah Cry, I think it's close to 16, 17 years. I'm not bragging about Jeremiah Cry. I'm not bragging about that I've been in it for a long time. But I tell people, 
that want to give to the ministry or come to me or whatever, I say, listen, here's what I have to say, but do your own research. Go through all of the history of Jeremiah Cry all the way back from its inception. You're not going to find one thing there that's going to be concerning other than the fact that we're totally reformed. You know, you're going to see that, and if you have a problem with that, it's too bad. <laughs> all the way back to our first glimpse of David, we see clearly that he was a man after God's own heart. David was an errand boy for his father and was faithful to the post right up to his victory over Goliath. And if you check with people that have been in ministry for any long period of time, they'll tell you they're the most imperfect person on the planet. Most people that draw closer to Christ see more, the, the closer you get to the light, right, the more, the more infection of disease that you see under that spotlight, right, the more we see that we even need Christ even more. And I think this is kind of what we see with David. David started out in the fields, right, with the sheep. And they were looked upon as being very lowly people. Like we would look at a homeless person probably. We'd look at that and go, ugh, you know. But out there, the Lord was training him to be king. He was training him how to treat sheep, how to take care of sheep. He spent a long time out there. He penned some of his psalms out there. You could imagine what his singing sounded like on those fields as he was rounding up the rounding up the sheep. You can almost imagine and then the battles with the lions. I mean, lions are terrifying, but nothing terrifies me more than a bear. I asked, "What would you rather be attacked by?" Oh, I mean, I saw the videos, right? I see the videos, and it's like I don't think I want to be attacked by either one of them. But if I have a choice, I'll take the the cat. Over the bear. That's just me. I, I would never want to be mauled by like a grizzly bear. Sounds terrifying. Either way, David destroyed them both. So when he got to Goliath, he's thinking, what in the world? 40 days and 40 nights? You're going to listen to this guy bark at the children of God for that long? And your king, Saul, is not going to lift a finger to do anything about this. He's just going to sit there and tremble and shake with everybody else. He doesn't do anything. David comes on being faithful to his dad, bringing food to other people, being the servant boy. I'm the servant boy. I'm the errand boy, right? You can imagine how they looked upon him. His own brothers teased him, said, oh, what are you here for? Oh, you come here to watch the battle. Well, there's no battle because no one's doing anything, Right? But he's about ready to show them that he's going to become the spectacle here in a few minutes. When he doesn't tolerate it, he couldn't believe it. He said, what in the world is this I hear in my ears? You know what I mean? What, what's going to be done, whoever kills this Philistine? And then they tell him. But he didn't go out there because he wanted to be paid. He went out there because he was appalled that this guy was getting away with this for this long under King Saul and the children and the armies of Israel. What in the world? So he goes out there. The Bible says he didn't sit there and go, you know, bouncing back and forth, rocking. He ran towards Goliath. A man who's confident runs towards the enemy. He had nothing to fear. Why? Because he had put on the full armor of God. He had put on Christ. He went out there. He wasn't going out there with a slingshot and stone and thinking, oh, I'm just so skillful, which he was. But the reality is all of his faith, all of his trust was in Christ alone. He knew God would deliver him. And even if he didn't, he knew where he was going beyond his earthly life. He went out there with full confidence. Why did he do that? Why do people act and do risky things you had never thought in a million years that they could ever do? Why is it that some missionaries can travel to the other side of the country 
and just get slaughtered before they even hit the beaches of that country? What possesses a man or a woman to go into countries like Amy Carmichael? You think of these things, Corey Tenboom. You think of these people, you know, all these different people, Spurgeon, Mueller, David Livingston in Africa. What possesses a person to go and do that? I'll tell you what it is. They know their God. The book of Daniel says those who know their God will do great exploits. It's knowing God. It's not reading about God. It's not a legalistic thing that you go through every morning because that won't last. When, when, all, when all hell comes gunning at you, I promise all of your techniques aren't going to mean anything. But your love and devotion and knowledge of God and knowing God will get you through the most harshest persecution and tragedies ever known to mankind. Christians survive through that stuff. And even if they don't, they go right into the love of Christ for all eternity. They're not afraid. I'll tell you one thing really quick. I know for myself, the more I'm in prayer, the more I'm in God's word, the more trusting I become with God and trusting with my life. Remember, the most fiercest man in battle is the one who isn't afraid to die. They're the scariest people in battle. William Wallace was it. All these different men throughout history would go into the thick. They didn't care if they died. They cared about freedom. And they had something that possessed them to such an extent that they would run right into the heart of battle, even at the expense of their life for freedom. For the Christian, for us, we run into the heart of battle in the heart of the most difficult situations. It could be at your workplace. It could be that difficult conversation that you have to, you have to confront Monday morning. Right? It could be anything. It could be another parent, people that work in the schools. It could be anything. But you know what? You have Christ. You must be fearless and know that God is with you. He will take care of you. And you will walk out of there victorious one way or another. Third point, having an enduring fervent ministry versus a short-lived ego trip. This is a big one, guys. Having an enduring, an enduring ministry. I mean, what a beautiful thing. Many of you, I know Jerry knows a, a couple of his friends or your father-in-law or whatever. They have just been walking with the Lord for many, many, many years. And when they go to the grave, they leave behind a legacy, an inheritance. Not maybe money, but they leave behind a godly life. The most beautiful testimony that a person can, can give to one, uh, uh, you know, as, as Brett was singing this morning with, with a hymn about dying, you know, dying well. The only way you will die well is when you live well. That's the only way that happens. We got to understand that we want, I want to I die well, but I want to leave behind a legacy and a testimony of a man who followed hard after God. Probably the most imperfect man ever, but my desire and motive is to pursue God all the days of my life. I want to be enduring. I don't want to be some short-lived ego trip. I mean, the ego, by a certain age, your ego should die. You know, vanity is filled with the youth. Young people, they think very vainly. I thought very vainly when I was younger. I still have vanity in my thoughts now. Don't get me wrong. But the reality, the more older I get and the closer I get to the grave, the less and less the things that used to be important to me are important anymore. About things that I always worried about, wanted, or wanted to look like, or this and that. I really don't care like about what other... I mean, I do care what you think. I care what my wife thinks. I care what the Lord thinks. But as far as everybody else's opinions, I don't care. I don't have enough time to worry about what everyone's little view is on my life. As long as I'm living for Christ... 
And I have completely surrendered to him. That's the way it's going to be until I take my last breath. The Bible says in Galatians 6, 9 through 10, let us not be weary in well-doing. Hear that closely. Let us not be weary, weary, tired, right, from well-doing. What that's saying is that our, our ministry, who we are, what we're doing, let it not exhaust us by our human effort. But let us stay. Let us stay exhilarated. Let us stay encouraged and refreshed in the Lord when we are out doing things for others that God has called us to do. For in due season we shall reap if, if we faint not. As we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto them who are of the household of faith, especially our own church. You know, people just run out there and give money, 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 money to all the homeless people. That's a beautiful thing. I think at some, using much discernment on that, it's okay. But when they think of giving money to the church, they cringe, make fun of it, talk under their breath, and won't give a dime to the church. It's really an amazing thing. I don't know what it is just about what churches have done in this country to make everybody so, not everybody, blanket statement, but a lot of people very sour about giving. It's probably, you know, it's probably very understandable. Saul was very angry. In Ephesians 4.31, it says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. It said from this moment on in verse 9, Saul eyed David from that day forward. Kind of like when we do this thing. It's the, same, it's the same idea. After that point, Saul feels robbed, right? People that are not humble feel robbed when somebody else gets attention and not them, right? Instead of going, I repent, I'm sorry, I need to learn from this and grow from this. Instead, they take it as a, an attack. Oh, they're all, I'm a victim. They're attacking me. They're attacking me. No, they're not. Your leadership's being revealed to everybody. You can't run from it. It's just the truth. You're decided to get angry. And boy, did he get angry. Because at that very moment, it said, Saul eyed David from that day forward. And we know this to be true because he hunted David relentlessly, obsessively, like a, <clears throat> like a drug addict looking for his fix. He wanted to destroy, he wanted to be, he wanted to destroy David to regain his power. I ask you this question real quick in closing. Are we willing, are you willing to be hunted down for our faith in Jesus Christ? Are you willing to be hunted down for your faith? Because we're living in a day now, I don't care what your eschatology is, we're living in a place in history right now where this could actually be a reality in America. This could be a reality in America. You could have someone literally knocking on your door, wanting to destroy your entire family and drag you off to who knows where for not complying with a tyrant's way of leadership. That's where we're at in this country. We can ignore all we want. We can sing a little louder and hope it just all goes away. But it's not going to go away anytime soon. Therefore, we as believers, yeah, we're a small church. Who cares? God can save by few or He can save by many. We are called to stand up in the face of evil, not run and hide and kick someone else in the rear end and applaud them for getting out there. We need to be a part of this. We need to be ready. If you're not ready for persecution in this country, you need to get ready. If you're soft and lazy, you're going to get run over. You have to get ready. 
You have to apply yourself to fasting, to prayer, knowing God, getting involved. I'm not talking about Christian nationalism either. I'm talking about trusting the Lord Christ, trusting Him, and then moving in faith that God is sovereignly watching over you and will guide you and grant you the strength. Like George Whitfield says, is that we are immortal until God is through with us. And this is the truth. You are immortal until God's done with you. Get in the fray. Fight. Be the most fearless man out there that's not afraid to die. And I'm not saying every circumstance is that you're going to be put in a position to die. But I'm saying with all the guns, all the shootings that are going on, all these mass murders that are going on, popping up at malls and banks, they're popping up everywhere now. Everybody's doing it. It's fashionable. People are killing 18 people, 22 people. It just constantly, men, women, children, it doesn't matter. Churches are being shot up. We have to be ready for these things if they ever were to occur. 2 Timothy 5 says, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I'm not saying it's going to, it may not be drug off in chains and beat to death, but you may be persecuted at work. Someone may say something to you to confront you about your faith. You may say something really beautiful about a testimony, and that person comes right out of the gates going, God's not real. You know, it totally squashed the entire situation. You've got to be ready to handle that in a godly, biblical way to testify of your love to Christ and your love for others. Jesus said in Matthew 5, Blessed are you when they revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice, he says. Don't get angry and fight back and retaliate. He says the opposite. He says rejoice and be exceedingly glad. For great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus said it himself. He would become obsessed with gaining the kingdom back, Saul was. So much Saul that he would resort to murder to obtain it once again. But we have to remember this. At the end of the day, we have to look at both sides of these, of these ones fading out, ones fading in. But we have to look at one that fades neither out or in, and that's Jesus Christ, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is the author and the finisher of our faith. He is the sacrificial lamb of God before the foundations of the world. Christ always is and always has been. He rules and reigns, and in him everything is held together. Christ died for the ungodly. And the Bible says in Romans 5, 6, you see, at just the right time, when we were powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. So remember this this morning. Jealousy and envy versus humility and contentment. Which one do you stand at? Where do you stand? Having a good reputation versus performance-driven idolatry. Where do you stand? Having an enduring fervent ministry. Which one do you want? Or do you want a short-lived ego trip? Let's pray. Yes. There we go.